Hello and welcome to The Search with Clint and Shahe, and welcome in particular to Season 2. Having completed our series on the Torah, Clint and I have decided to dedicate the next several months to talking about how to study the Bible. We want to take lessons we've learned from our own personal experiences and research and synthesize together some material on Bible study methodology that will prayerfully be helpful to all of you. We hope you enjoy this series. Hello and welcome to The Search with Clint and Shahe. My name is Shahe Jurgen, and I'm with Clint de France tonight. And we're here to start season two of The Search. And we're very excited about this. Uh, we have been spending the last several months, many months, examining together the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And throughout that journey, we've learned a lot together, and uh, a lot of you have given us some great feedback about how much you've enjoyed this process and how much you have participated in your own Bible study with the journey that we have been taking, and we've been very enriched and encouraged by all of that. And so now we're here for season two, and season two is going to be all about how to study the Bible. So uh, let's talk for a second about why we're shifting gears into this topic and moving away from some uh, chapter by chapter or some book analysis for a short period of time. So of course, Clint and I uh, ourselves have been Bible students and Bible teachers for many years now. And throughout that time, we have changed and developed and matured in our own abilities as Bible students. We've gone on our own journeys, sometimes by ourselves and sometimes together and sometimes with others in being better, more equipped Bible students. In addition to that, Clint and I have uh, had an opportunity on this program to sort of work through hermeneutical concepts with very ancient source texts, the Torah, and that too has helped us in developing Bible skills and in developing our own approach to Scripture. And then even in addition to that, uh, Clint, over the last couple of years, has in particular had opportunities to do some training programs with people that are focused on how to study the Bible. And so he's been developing curriculum and notes and working through that process in training people and in helping to develop people to be better Bible students. So considering all of these sort of different streams of our lives and how they've all brought us to this place, we've decided that this would be a good opportunity for us to shift gears for a while on the search, to talk more broadly and uh, in a more concrete way about our approach to studying the Bible so that we can try our best to help you to become a better Bible student, wherever you are on your own Bible study journey. Maybe you've been reading the Bible for a very long time. Uh, Maybe you're quite new to methodological Bible study. Either way, I think that what we're going to have to discuss and what we'll have to share over the next several months will be of a benefit to you. So that's kind of why we are where we are right now when talking about how to study the Bible. So this is season two. Season two will be all about this, and this is our first episode, and we're going to be focusing in this episode in particular on the need to have an open heart when it comes to Bible study. Now, before we get too far into that, we want to really uh, make sure that we define some terms that I'm sure you will hear us using quite frequently as we go throughout this season. And the first is an expression that, relatively speaking, is kind of new to me and kind of new to Clint within the last couple of years, and that is the expression inductive Bible study, inductive Bible study. Now, this is a Bible study uh, methodology that Clint and I have both been learning more about and trying to implement a little bit more in our own approach to Scripture. So before we get too far, Clint, I want you just to sort of define what the inductive Bible study approach is and maybe a couple of other key terms that we'll often use in conjunction with this, like the word exegesis or induction, deduction, things like that, some terms that people need to be aware of uh, as we'll be using them throughout this course. Well, sure. So induction, of course, is a kind of reasoning. 
it's an approach that people can take to problem solving. And it is opposed to other kinds of reasoning, such as deduction and abduction. Inductive and deductive reasoning are the two that are usually sort of set uh, alongside one another as two options when you're trying to figure out the solution to a problem. And if you use deductive reasoning, then you begin with a presupposition. You start with a body of truth that you have determined is real and accurate and reliable, and you allow those presuppositions to guide you to a conclusion. But when you reason inductively, then you begin with evidence, and you work through evidence to a conclusion, trying as best you can to lay aside all presuppositions. Now, that's extremely difficult, and really it's impossible. As a human being, your understanding, your mind is made up of things you have learned. And the things that you have learned by experience or by education or however else you might have learned them uh, are your presuppositions. And if you lay all of them aside, then you know nothing. You wouldn't know, you would know language, you wouldn't know anything, and, and you wouldn't be able to think very well at all. So we're not saying that presuppositions are bad, but that presuppositions rather should be identified and checked. We should keep in mind what we are bringing to uh, a subject that we're going to be considering versus what is in the subject itself. What we bring, if we allow that to rule the day, well, that's deductive reasoning. And if we're talking about studying the Bible, then we're talking about approaching the Bible with a head full of our own ideas and allowing our ideas to determine what the Bible says to us. That would be deductive Bible study. And a lot of people study the Bible that way. A lot of people allow uh, certain faith documents or religious traditions or personal experiences to establish in their mind what is true before they approach the Bible, and then they really are using the Bible to uh, substantiate and to prove uh, the conclusions that they reached externally from the Bible. But if you study the Bible inductively, then you recognize, sir, you have a lot of ideas, but your ideas may not be the same as the ideas of the Bible writers and the ideas of God himself, if you believe that the Bible is the Word of God. And so you're wanting to, as best you can, move beyond your presuppositions into the heart of Scripture to find what was placed there by the author of Scripture, whether that was the human author or the divine author or both, and then to draw that out. Well, drawing that out, that process is called exegesis. That's what the word exegesis means, to draw out. The opposite of exegesis is eisegesis, to stick in. Well, deductive reasoning or deductive Bible study tends uh, to result in us sticking things into the Bible, whereas inductive Bible study tends to result in us drawing truths out of the Bible. And of course, if we have a respect for the Bible as the Word of God, as something that is uh, different from our own opinions. And of course, if we just understand that it's an ancient book from a different culture, some issues we'll talk about in a moment, I'm sure, then we'll realize how important the inductive approach is. We talked a little bit about this, I think, in our first episode, and I just want to give a refresher, that essentially the inductive approach is built around three steps. And there are many different uh, methodological styles of inductive Bible study. I've just recently been learning about one that developed kind of in the 1920s and has been uh, sharpened and honed and refined over the last several years, uh, especially by two scholars, the late Dr. Robert Trena and Dr. David Bauer. And <clears throat> they are kind of the men who uh, define the term inductive Bible study now, but 
even if you look at other methods of inductive Bible study that practically uh, have different slight movements along the way, they're all going to be built around this three-step process of observation, interpretation, and application. When we talk about observation, we're asking, what does the text say? And we're learning right. to identify uh, the, the best text of Scripture we can identify and how to read it well. Then when we talk about interpretation, we're asking, what does the text mean? And so we're using uh, logical skills to determine meaning with language, because that's, of course, what the text is, is using. It's not using pictures or interpretive dance or something else like that. It's using words in human language. So what does the text mean? And then finally, after observing what the text says and interpreting what the text means, we ask, how does this text apply to my life? How does this passage of Scripture impact me and transform me as an individual? So those terms are, I think, the key terms for understanding inductive Bible study methodology. We've talked extensively in, in previous episodes about how oftentimes modern Christians have this sort of knee-jerk to, to default primarily or first and foremost beyond anything else to the application, the last step in that process. And of course, we've noted how that can be extremely problematic, um, because you, if you don't really know what a text says, and you certainly don't really understand what it meant as the author originally intended for its meaning to be communicated to the original audience, uh, then you can make the Bible say almost anything, and you can teach almost anything from the Bible uh, if you go straight to that third and final step. So when we talk about having a methodology that's that's the idea that we're talking about, a strategic approach that works step-by-step step through a passage of Scripture from point A to point B to point C that says, here is the approach that I'm going to take, and here is the way that I'm going to navigate through a text in order to, under, uh, in order to arrive at a final conclusion, which is the application that comes at the end. So that's kind of what we're talking about here when we're talking about uh, this methodological approach. So the next thing that we want to talk about is um, understanding why it is that Bible study is sometimes difficult, and why it is that sometimes understanding the Bible, both from an observation and interpretation standpoint, and even ultimately an application standpoint, why that sometimes can be a difficult thing uh, to, to arrive to. How do I know what this text really means? And again, I think a lot of us have sort of the the instinct to say, well, uh, the Bible is the Bible, it's the Word of God, I should just be able to open it, read it, understand it, apply it, just do what it says, and there's not much more to it than that. But no, I think in a lot of uh, instances there is a lot more to it than that, and we want to sort of outline why that is. So there are a number of gaps that exist between us and the original biblical audiences, uh, we're going to talk about several here, and we'll talk more about these too as we progress through this through this study. Uh, the first sort of several gaps between us and the original audience all go together. The first and most obvious one is the time gap. The closest biblical audience to us lived nearly 2,000 years ago. That's a long time. A lot's happened in the world in 2,000 years. Uh, between us and the original biblical audiences, there is a geographical gap. I live in America, as does Clint. Americans sometimes struggle to know American geography, more or less the geography of the ancient Mediterranean world, knowing where places were, why those places were significant, so on and so forth. A third gap between us and them is the cultural gap. We talked a lot about this when we studied books like Leviticus, that there are all kinds of strange, foreign, ancient, cultural ideals that are behind the text that the author and the audience understand well, because they were common to them, that we just don't get. Uh, anyone who has traveled outside of the country of their birth understands culture shock. You can go to places where things are just done very differently, customs are different, and it's sometimes 
boggles the mind to think, well, these people are living in the same time period that I live, and yet they are so different from me. The things they do are so different from the things that I do. Now, add to that 2,000 years, ancient cultures being so different than modern cultures, that is a gap that exists between us and the original biblical audiences. And then language. Language is a huge gap. I know that we're blessed to live in a time where we have all kinds of English language translations that we can read and understand, but translation from an ancient language to a modern, vibrant, changing language is not a science. (laughs) And a lot of difficult decisions have to be made by translators to say, do I try to be as word for word as possible and render this ancient text into an English language that nobody could understand, into an English sentence that no one would really understand? Do I try to capture the the idea or the meaning? Then you're getting into a little interpretation to try to capture the idea or the meaning and to bring that over into a modern language. So these are just a few of the gaps, and there are more, uh, more gaps between us and the original biblical audiences. So Clint, help us navigate through these. What are some other things? Maybe you'd like to comment on these four, or maybe uh, enumerate a few others that make it difficult for us sometimes to read the Bible in the way it was originally intended to be read and understood. Well, I think that the, the, the points that you've just noted, the gaps or the spaces between us and the meaning of Scripture that would prevent uh, its meaning from being intuitive, just sort of the natural thought we would normally think, most people, I think, probably imagine these gaps are pretty much cleared when you pick up an English translation of the Bible. That's what the translators are supposed to do. They're supposed to make the Bible accessible to me. And sure, I might read about a place, uh, you know, strong bulls of Bashan. I don't know what Bashan is, but I know what a bull is, and I know what it means to be strong, so uh, that's good enough, isn't it? Well, maybe, but uh, of course the Bible does say bulls of Bashan. What did that mean? Where, where was that? What was the difference between a bull of Bashan and a bull from some other part of the world? Right. Uh, you see, those are things that some people might assume are, are insignificant, but if you make that assumption, you are being deductive. You, you have a presupposition, and your presupposition is that the geography of Scripture isn't important. So uh, you don't have to worry about that. That doesn't have any impact on the meaning. If you try inductive Bible study for a while, you might discover that, in fact, the writers of Scripture used the land in which they lived and geographical and topographical, uh, topographical, of course, meaning, you know, more of the landscape, but geographical and topographical features of the land in which they lived to teach lessons. Right. Just like we, we do today. I mean, we... We use expressions about the the redwoods of California and uh, other things like that, you know, to we, we, we describe something as being like the Sahara Desert. And to anybody who knows what the Sahara Desert, that evokes a certain kind of imagery. And the same thing is true in the literature of the Bible. The point is that you, you might think that translations and maybe a good commentary will help you to bridge all of these gaps. But even those things can only go so far, and uh, any one of those tools was created by a human being who did not have the divine guidance that the authors of Scripture had. So really, you're just allowing someone else to, to do work for you, and you've got to keep that in mind. Uh, It doesn't erase the fact that the work had to be done. If you don't do it, someone else has to do it. The gap is real, and it must be spanned. There are other gaps that are worth mentioning. One we can call the literary gap, which has to do with the fact that the Bible is made up of numerous varieties of literary genre and subgenre. And to properly handle the text, you've got to learn how to navigate those diverse literary genres, because they're not all intended to be read the same way. 
And some Bible books are written in literary genres that don't exist today, such as the genre called apocalypse. Uh, I've not heard of anybody writing an apocalypse day. You might say, well, uh, I've heard of a genre called post-apocalyptic, <laughs> but that doesn't mean anywhere close to the to the word apocalypse in the context of biblical literature. And there's another example of deductive reasoning where you maybe the word apocalyptic means something to you, and you carry that into the Bible. And when you encounter that word apocalypse in the context of Bible studies, you assume that the definition that you have learned in your culture and in your world is uh, the definition intended here and the same meaning in this uh, particular context. Well, that's just not going to be the case. Similarly, we have the supernatural gap. We live in a world that is uh, a modernist world, and the modernist world, you know, is one that separates human experience into two categories. We have the spiritual and we have the scientific. And that's not the world of the ancients. The ancient world was written in a world that didn't have those strict uh, dichotomies of spirituality and science. And consequently, they thought differently than we did about things like uh, angels and demons and God and miracles and uh, events that we might call supernatural events. We've got to learn to think like they thought if we want to understand the books that were written to them or about them. Scholars like Michael Heiser, who we've talked about several times, work really hard to make that a possibility for modern readers. And even if sometimes they go too far or they don't handle it the right way, the work that they're doing is meaningful because it's helping us to bridge that significant gap, going back to another worldview. Then we have the theological gap. This is so interesting when you brought up the fact, and I know people say this because I've heard people say it, uh, folks might say, well, this is the Word of God, and so I should just be able to open it and read it and understand it. Right. Uh, what God are you talking about? Because the God who inspired the Bible said, my thoughts are not your thoughts, <laughs> neither are your ways my ways, says the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. In Isaiah 55, I think it's uh, 8 through 9, the Apostle Paul said that a God that's like us, a God that we can easily relate to, is a God that we've invented. Mm. And such a God is very different from the Bible. If we came up with God from our own imaginations and impulses and lusts and appetites and tastes, it would be very, very different from the God of the Bible. That's Paul's point in Romans 1, verses 21 through 23. So the fact that the Bible is the Word of God constitutes a huge gap between us and its meaning. And then, of course, the appropriation gap of, of taking texts that are thousands of years old and making sense of how they would impact a, a modern American life. Well, that's not intuitive. That, that's not something that's just obvious. Uh, a lot goes into that, whether well thought out or, or not. And finally, this is kind of the, the crux of the matter for our discussion today, there is what we can call the personal gap. And the personal gap refers to character flaws that are in all of us because we're sinners, and to habits and uh, lifestyle practices that we have developed and allowed to form in us that are not good and that will make it actually impossible for us to study the Bible well. So before we, we try to learn how to use tools or develop skills to bridge any of those other gaps. And I mean, there's a lot we've covered already. There's a grand canyon between us and the meaning of Scripture. But before we can ever start to make an effort to cross that canyon, we have to work on the personal gap. We have to work on us, right. on preparing our own hearts to approach the Bible. 
Well, and we're going to talk about that next, but before we do, I just want to read two uh, Scripture passages from the New Testament to sort of support, from the biblical standpoint, some of the things that Clinton and I have been discussing. I don't want you to think that these are uh, gaps that we have invented, or that uh, you know we're here saying that sometimes Bible study is very difficult and complex, and what we're saying has no support from Scripture itself. The first is from 2 Timothy. This is probably, uh, most believe, the last letter that the Apostle Paul ever wrote, and he wants Timothy to come visit him, and he gives him this admonition in 2 Timothy 2, 14 and 15. He says, "'Remind them of these things, and solemnly charge them in the presence of God, not to wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth." Well, obviously, if Paul has to tell Timothy to do it accurately, that meant that there was a way it could be done that wasn't accurate. And Mm. so Paul is giving uh, his protege this admonition to make sure that as he is teaching the Bible, as he is studying the Bible, that he is doing so in a way that has accuracy to it. And there's a reason for that, and the reason is given to us by the Apostle Peter. Uh, Peter, in his, what was probably uh, the last thing he ever wrote in 2 Peter chapter 3, closes out his letter, his second letter, with a kind of similar-sounding warning. He says this, this is starting in verse 14, "'Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. So here Peter tells us there were people who were not handling the word of truth accurately. They were untaught, they were unstable, and they were distorting the words that Paul had written. And Peter himself, an apostle, says, yeah, that's because there are some things that Paul wrote that are hard to understand. Uh, And so I wonder if Peter had a copy of Romans in front of him when he was thinking about that. So yes, of course, even those who were contemporaries of other biblical writers were acknowledging handling the scriptures as something that takes care, it takes diligence, it takes dedication, and that's because there are some things in the Bible that are hard, and how much more difficult will it be now for us being so far removed and living in a time and place and culture with a language that is so different from those original biblical audiences? Okay, so then we say, oh, go ahead, Clint. Yeah, I just want to say, you know, at, at this point in, in, in doing studies like this, people always get really kind of angry, frankly. They get angry and they, they say, well, it's not supposed to be this hard, and if it's this hard, what's the point? Why should I even try? Do I have to have a, a seminary education to, just to be a Christian? We're not saying you have to have a seminary education to be a Christian. That's not, that's not what we're saying at all. Uh, if you have ever researched a seminary education, there's a lot involved in that kind of thing beyond what we're talking about. Uh, we're talking about be- becoming a better Bible reader. And if you ask the question this way, do I have to always be trying to improve and trying to grow and, and increase my skills in engagement with the Word of God to be a good Christian? The answer is yes. It's yes. Who told you that you could be lazy and negligent and be a good Christian? Because it certainly wasn't the Scripture. The Scripture says be diligent. That's the opposite of be lazy and negligent, flip it open whenever you want to. It's easy. It'll just sort of flow out of the book and into your brain. That is not what the Bible says. The Bible says that even the people back then who had less gaps, or at least they were not as wide as the ones we have to deal with, they had to be diligent 
as you said, how much more us. So I just want to speak a word of soft rebuke to those who might be inclined to get irritated or angry or sort of puff their chest out here and say, well, you know, I just don't think it's it's uh, got to be that hard. Listen to the book itself. The book itself said, if you're untaught and you're unstable, if you don't know the things that you need to know to clear these other gaps and you haven't prepared your own heart, the personal gap, that's what that's talking about, then you are going to twist these texts to your own destruction. And Paul will say, if you're somebody who, who tries to instruct others, to their destruction as well. Mm. So very important, very important yeah. to uh, come to terms with that right here. Well, then let's talk. Let's flip flip to the other side of that then, and let's talk about, okay, well, then what's the solution? What's the answer? How do we over start to overcome um, some of these gaps? Uh, and what uh, what are the approaches? What are the what are the things that we need to start examining in our own self? And uh, how can we start to do that? Well, let, we want to focus on that. I and mean, that's really mostly what this series is going to be about. And we want to start by quickly looking at a biblical example of a group of people who were doing the things that Clint and I are going to be encouraging all of us to do. And if you're doing some of these things, great, we can improve and we can do them better. And the example is a group of people who were living in an ancient city called Berea. Uh, this was in the uh, Greek, the Greece area, area of Greece. And um, this is on Paul's second missionary journey. We read about them in Acts 17. So Paul had been in a place called Thessalonica, and he had uh, received a lot of opposition from the Jewish community there. They sort of driven him out. And he goes down to this place called Berea, and this was the response to his preaching that's recorded for us in Acts 17, beginning in verse 10. So the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. Okay, Clint, this is a biblical model, a biblical example of people who learned from Paul and when they heard Paul's preaching, they did something. What was it that they did, and how is that instructive for us as we talk about our own approach to Bible study? So the text describes the action of the Bereans in three ways. They received the word with eagerness and searched the scriptures daily. So you count, you'll see how I counted that off. They received the word with eagerness. They searched the scriptures daily. Uh, that means, as one has said, they had open hearts, open Bibles, and open schedules. They received the word with eagerness, and they searched the scriptures, and they did it every day in order to test whether the things they were being taught were truly so. And that is a marvelous model of what it means to bridge the personal gap. Uh, develop an open heart, develop an open Bible, that's a good habit of Bible reading, good skills in Bible reading, and develop an open schedule where you make time and dedicate time to reading and uh, familiarizing yourself with what the Word of God says. So that first bit about uh, receiving the Word with eagerness, well, not everybody does that. There's a lot of people in this world whose nature, uh, because of the decisions they've made and the person they've allowed themselves to become through their own life and through the influences of others, is bent away from an eager reception of the Word of God. Mm. Uh, one passage I would like us to read is Matthew chapter 13. This is the parable of the sower. Uh, Matthew 13, verses 3 through 9. Matthew 13, verses 3 through 9. The Bible says, Jesus spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. 
Others fell on rocky places where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. Others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. And others fell on the good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. If you look down in verses 18 through 23 of this same chapter, Jesus explains the parable. He tells us that the seed he's talking about is the word of God. And the different soils represent different hearts of men. Uh, There are some hearts like that soil on the side of the road that is beaten down and hardened. The word of God is not even able to penetrate it. And though those people hear the word of God or read it or receive it somehow, it's as though they never did. It's gone as soon as it's there. And then there are other people like that rocky soil. They're shallow. And they might immediately seem to be excited about what they're reading. And they cry and they laugh and they they shout amen over and over and over again. But they're not really thinking about it. They don't have any depth in what they're, uh, they're, they're encountering. They're not internalizing it. And as soon as things get difficult... It's gone. It's as though that encounter with the Word never happened. And then the ones who are like thorny ground, these are people who are cluttered. What, what are thorns and thistles? Well, it's overgrowth. It's, it's cluttered, and it prevents the sun from hitting the soil and uh, the nutrients from getting down in there. And uh, the overgrowth chokes out, it says, the, the plant that's trying to develop so it never bears any fruit. He says, well, that's people who are concerned with money and riches and worldly pursuits. They don't have time to invest in the Word of God. We'll talk about that later in a couple of weeks. And uh, it, it gets in there, but it doesn't do anything. Right. It doesn't bear any fruit. Only one kind of heart has fruitfulness, the, the kind of impact that the Bible was designed to have, and that is the good and honest heart. That's the kind of heart that receives the word with eagerness. And if, you know, my wife and I, uh, we did our, a garden really for the first time this year, a vegetable garden, and we saw the the difficulty of planting a garden. You've got to First, till the ground and remove the rocks and weeds that keep the root system from developing, especially here in Oklahoma where we've got all kinds of rocks in the ground. And uh, that's the illustration Jesus used here. And the point is, if you want to have a healthy relationship with the Bible, you've got to work on yourself. You've got to prepare yourself to receive the Word with eagerness. And that's really what we're, what we're trying to talk about tonight. Well, I'm glad you brought up the parable of the sower, because it fits so well with everything we've been talking about. Uh, I used to have the idea about parables, that the point of a parable was to give some earthly or physical illustration that was common, easy to understand, so that a spiritual truth or a spiritual reality might be made a little bit more manifest through the the illustration. So the the parable was the thing that enabled people to understand better what Jesus was teaching. And then I really then I studied Matthew 13 and I thought I discovered is <laughs> the exact opposite of that because Jesus when when Jesus starts to give this parable the disciples pull him aside and they say what's wrong with you? People don't understand parables. Nobody nobody gets what you're saying here. And he says, "Yes, that's the point." Because to those uh, who have been g- granted opportunity to understand the mystery of the kingdom of heaven, they'll be given even more. And those who have closed off their ears, those who have shut their eyes, those who refuse to hear, this is just going to go right over their head. I'm paraphrasing, obviously, mm-hmm. what Jesus mm-hmm. said there. Mm-hmm. So those who were open and those who were willing to learn from the master, from King Jesus, those who had hearts that were open to what he was doing and what he was teaching, they would be the ones 
who would really be able to understand these parables because, as you've been teaching us, they had hearts that were open. They had hearts that were receptive. Now, I do want to clarify something. I hope you can clarify this for us. When we talk about having an open heart, I think, you know, the way we use that is maybe the heart is kind of the seat of of our emotions, and maybe it's a a feelings Mm. thing. But in the biblical imagination, that's not really what a heart always conveyed. I mean, what does it practically mean to have an open heart? How does that even work? Well, that's an excellent point. You know, I, I still struggle to fully understand biblical anatomy, uh, the anatomy of the ancient mind. I know that they thought the kidneys did things that I don't understand kidneys to do and, and other things like that. If you read some of the ancient literature, they talk about parts of the body in ways that are strange to us. The heart... I mean, how, how do we know what they meant? The only way I know is to look at what they describe the heart doing. And there are numerous texts that describe the heart uh, doing intelligent things. With the heart, one perceives, says John 12 and verse 40. With the heart, one thinks, Matthew 9 and verse 4. With the heart, one reasons, Mark 2 and verse 6. With the heart one believes, Romans 10, 9 and 10. And in uh, Exodus 35, verse 5, uh, we, we read the statement that those who are going to do such and such a thing have to have a willing heart. They have to have a heart that wants to do this sort of thing. So the heart seems in the biblical mind to be more than simply a seat of emotion, a, a thing that causes you to cry or to laugh and to feel, but it seems to be a seat of intelligence, of reasoning and consciousness and uh, thinking and uh, morally apprehending that which is good and that which is evil and that which is beautiful and that which is ugly. And it's difficult to, to put a, a simple definition on it. Instead, I think it's just best to look at... Uh, the, the things that the Bible says the heart does. And when we talk about having an open heart, we mean having a healthy ability to do all of those things, to perceive, think, reason, believe, accept. And an open heart is a heart that is willing, earnestly seeking out of a, a hunger and an internal recognition of need, something outside of itself. We have we've talked uh, um, in our Exodus study about Pharaoh and how Pharaoh had you know before he he heard anything about the God of Israel before he had learned anything about y- Yahweh had pr- seems entirely shut himself off to the idea that uh, you know that the Israelites had a God that they wanted to go and worship in the desert and so as the plagues sort of played out there was this dual work happening one was Pharaoh's where he had decided to harden his heart or to close himself off to the realities that were right in front of his face as these miracles were being worked uh, through Moses and the land was being devastated by them, but also that God was hardening Pharaoh's heart because of that stubbornness, because of that unwillingness to yield to the power of God. God sort of, uh, you might say, pushed the fast-forward button and uh, pushed Pharaoh to to the brink where finally everything came to a head at the end of that uh, uh, showdown between Moses and the Lord and Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt. And there seemed to be a, a sort of a riff on that in 2 Thessalonians where Paul talks about people who have closed themselves off to the truth, who have shut their ears like Jesus talked about, closed their eyes, that God will allow them to be deceived and will send them on their way and give them over to that deception um, because they have just decided that they're not interested in, in the reality that is right in front of them. And so I think as we talk about what it means to have your cognition, your intelligence, uh, your your person open to the truth. Uh, this becomes, I mean, like maybe the most important thing. I think that's why we're starting here, right? If we're not open to the truth of God, if we're not willing to examine what's right in front of us, 
then we've already closed ourselves off to whatever it is that God is looking for us to know and would like for us and want for us to do, right? So so we, as we think about how we're influenced and how all of the influences of our life have brought us up to the place that we are in right now, that reflection, that introspection, that self-examination, which is sometimes... I mean, frankly, such a hard thing to do. It's hard to examine yourself, honestly. I, mm. I struggle with that. It's hard to say. Um, it's hard to say. You know, okay, I can have a real, uh, objective view of who I am as a person, and then identify the areas where I need to change. But that's what that's what God is inviting us to do, if we are open to it. If we will be willing to allow ourselves to open up, be willing to receive what it is that God wants us to know, then he will help us through uh, that self-examination in, into a time of growth. So if you were going to give cup, people a couple of keys as to what it takes to have an open heart to God, what, it, what uh, advice would you give about that? Well, the first thing that you need to do is you do need to be introspective, and you need to ask, why do I believe what I believe. Uh, as I have thought through this, I've, I've found six reasons that most people have for believing the things they believe or thinking the way they think. One is repetition. If you hear something over and over and over and over again, uh, very likely you're just going to accept that it's true and never question it. Another is indoctrination. This is where an authority figure such as a parent or a teacher or a preacher, someone who we respect, says that something is true, and because of our respect for them, we just accept it. We never even ask a question whether or not it could be false. Then there's generalization. If you hear something uh, proposed in general terms, very broad terms, then it's harder to challenge it. For instance, you might go to school and hear the statement, you know, no intellectual person believes in God. Well, how do you disprove that? First, you're going to have to find somebody and prove that they're intellectual. And that's sort of a nebulous target to try to hit. Uh, now, if somebody says, no scientist, no, no person who, hold, who holds a PhD from an accredited institution believes in God, well, I can disprove that. I can literally go and find somebody who fits that category and say, yeah, this one believes in God, but if you just, if you make it too broad, too generic, then it's hard to, to challenge. And a lot of times that's how we're taught things in, in broad generalities. And so we, we embrace concepts without ever learning to really critically analyze, uh, analyze them. Then there's culturalization. In culturalization, you just sort of accept what your family or your religious community or your society says is true. And that's just normal. I mean, uh, a lot of what all of us believe, we believe through culturalization. There's two other factors. Emotion, how does it make you feel if such and such a thing is true or false? Uh, what impact would that have on you? Would it make you very happy? Would it make you very sad? That'll very likely affect whether or not you believe it. And then finally, because God made us the way that he did, we have the power to just make a decision about what we're going to believe or not. And we can say, I choose not to believe that, in spite of the fact that there's overwhelming evidence in favor of it. Or we can say, I choose to believe this in spite of the fact that there is no evidence in support of it. And I've known many people who, who lived their life that way. Now, I'm just going to be very frank that throughout my life, uh, indoctrination, indoctrination has been the, the biggest influence for me. There were mm. people who I really respected, and uh, I counted on them to tell me what was right and avoid all things that were wrong. And I would listen to them, and I would accept them, and it was very hard for me to question them. Another thing would be culturalization. The community that I was in, 
It was hard for me to think outside of that box, outside of that community. I was afraid, maybe that's a little bit of emotion. I was afraid of what the consequences might be uh, if I was to learn that something that everybody around me thought was right was actually wrong. Right. And I just didn't even want to think about that. So I'm giving you an example. The reality is everyone needs to learn to be strong enough to do that same kind of introspection and ask yourself which of these six reasons for believing things has the biggest impact on me. Now, the reality is not everything you learn by repetition, indoctrination, generalization, culturalization, emotion, and decision is wrong. Uh, This is how you learn almost everything you know. Right. And it's not all wrong, but it's not necessarily right. None of these things will guarantee uh, truth for you. They, They can't do that. They are not sources of infallible truth. And if you allow yourself to be supremely governed by any of these six factors, then you will not have an open heart. They will will close you off at at some place or another. So this is very important, first step. Now, after you have evaluated yourself, then you need to cultivate three qualities in yourself that constitute open-heartedness or open-mindedness. The first is humility. You've got to recognize that you don't know everything and that people who you respect and love, they don't know everything either. That will safeguard you from the folly of indoctrination and culturalization and repetition and other things like that. You don't know everything. You've been wrong before. You could be wrong now. Regardless of how old you are and how much experience you have, you have something to learn. All of us have something to learn. A humble attitude causes a person to receive the Bible with eagerness because you know that you need something. You know that there's something in there that you've got to get in order for you to be the person you're supposed to be. But with humility, you also need to cultivate a sense of certainty. That is, humility doesn't mean a cynical rejection of truth. I see that a lot in in modern society, especially people a little bit younger than me. It's like they've gotten so humble that uh, they don't believe anything is right, that there's any real progress, that one thing is as good as another and it's pointless to try. Well, that's not right. Uh, You have to acknowledge that truth exists and that it is contained in and communicated by the Word of God, and that it can be learned and it can be apprehended, even if only in portions at a time. There are visions the Apostle Paul has of the future of the church, and one of the things he sees the church attaining in the future is the knowledge of the Son of God, Ephesians 4 and verse 13. And the Bereans searched the Scriptures. Why? Because they expected that by their endeavor, they would learn whether the things they had been taught were so. They they would find an answer. They would reach a conclusion. Now, even if your conclusions need to be held tentatively, and humility would encourage that, always hold your conclusions tentatively because You might encounter further evidence that tells you you haven't gone far enough or you have been walking down the wrong road. You need to backtrack and take the other fork. All the same, tentative conclusions are still conclusions. So you can have conviction here. You can have certainty and humility at the same time. In fact, you need both. And then finally, an open heart requires submission. Submission. That is, once we learn something new, we have to be willing to accept it and perhaps obey it and certainly to be transformed by it because all truth will change us. It will change us either intellectually or practically or morally or in our character or maybe in a combination of all of those if we approach it or we receive it with an open heart. I want to read a passage of Scripture 
from the Gospel of John. This is a very important passage of Scripture. John chapter 5, verses 39 through 40. This really strikes the, the, the centerpiece of what we're talking about tonight. John 5, verse 39 through 40. These are the words of Jesus to the religious leaders of his day. He said, you search the scriptures. Well, that's what the Bereans did. These people did it too. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me, and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. Now, the meaning of that phrase, because you think that in them you have eternal life, uh, that could be easily misunderstood. What, what Jesus is saying is you search the scriptures to justify yourself. Right. That's, all, that's the reason. You're studying, you're diligent students, you're imbibing a lot of Bible. But the only reason you're doing it is to prove what you already think. You are deductive Bible students, and consequently, you're missing what's in the middle of it. These are they which testify of me, and here I am standing in front of you. You're poring over your Bible. I'm standing in front of you. I'm in the book you're reading, and you don't see me. You reject me because you're reading that book with a closed heart, a hard heart, a closed mind. You didn't prepare yourself before you began to study and search. And so that is the, the reason for this absolute necessity. Yeah. One of the things you said, that um, was all great information, you said uh, just a moment ago about the idea of truth, truth having an impact, truth transforming, truth changing, you have to be open to that truth. And so we just have a couple minutes left, and the last thing we want to talk about is um, the idea of truth and what what constitutes truth. And so I'm going to read a passage. This is all, just a few chapters later, also in the fourth gospel in John, and this is probably a well-known passage to people. In John 8, 31 and 32, Jesus was saying to the Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. There are a number of these kinds of truth-related statements in John, like when Jesus is before Pilate, and they argue about what is truth, and so on and so forth. So just with the last couple of minutes that we have, Clint, this is sort of the lay groundwork for future discussions. Can you give us sort of a, an explanation of what truth is and why at this stage, when we're talking about the need to have an open heart, having a grasp on an understanding of what truth is will become very important for us going forward? Well, philosophically, of course, there are different theories about truth. And uh, you'll hear people today, when, when folks talk about truth, people will say, whose truth? Whose truth? Are you speaking your truth? Are you speaking someone else's truth? But remember, we're, we're talking about the Bible here. We're wanting to understand the Bible. And the Bible ascribes to what's called the correspondence theory of truth. The correspondence theory of truth is truth is that which corresponds to reality. Here's a definition I found helpful. Truth is a belief, statement, or story which corresponds with reality. That's Merriam-Webster's definition, actually. And that's the same way that the Bible thinks of it. In fact, that's the way people have generally thought of it for 6,000 years at least uh, throughout recorded and known human history. There is a philosopher named Paul Copan, who I know you have read after, and I have too. He's a, a great philosopher and uh, Christian thinker in our day. And he illustrates this with a socket wrench, where the socket wrench is the belief, statement, or story, and it fits on a bolt. It fits right on it, and that, the bolt is the uh, reality. So if something is true, it's going to fit perfectly over reality. It's not going to be like st sticking a square peg in a round hole and uh, 
having the, the two things be incompatible. And that's very important. Truth is always compatible with reality. It is that which corresponds with reality. And so when we say that we believe in truth, we're going to look in the Bible for the truth. It means that we're going to investigate possible conclusions. And when we look at a conclusion, we're going to test whether it's right by its correspondence with reality. Well, we have talked tonight about uh, the inductive Bible study method and those three steps of observation, interpretation, and application. We have talked about a number of reasons why there is a gap between us and the original biblical audiences and why sometimes, oftentimes, that can make Bible study difficult. We've talked about a number of reasons as to why people believe basically what they believe and the essentiality of understanding why you believe what you believe and opening your heart, opening your whole person, your cognitive power, your intellectual acumen, uh, the seat of your emotion to the truth of Scripture. And and to do that, to to have that sort of uh, open heart uh, requires humility, it requires certainty, and it requires submission. Keep my eyes above the waves When oceans rise My soul will rest in your embrace For I am yours And you are